This is from the bookshelves of Forbes India. I am Divya Shekhar. We are back after our very short New Year break with a very special episode. I present to you the very first fiction title to be discussed on this podcast and it is none other than The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida written by Sri Lankan writer Shehan Karunatilaka who won the Man Booker Prize 2022 for this book barely 3 months ago. The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida comes more than a decade after Karunatilaka's debut China Man which was published in 2011. The book-winning novel tells the story of Mali Almeida, a photographer who wakes up dead in 1990 Sri Lanka in what seems like a celestial visa office. Now, Mali Almeida has seven moons to contact the people he loves and lead them to a bunch of photos of civil war atrocities that will rock Sri Lanka. I met up with Shehan a few weeks ago on the sidelines of the Kerala Literature Festival in Kozhikode and we had a freewheeling chat about his views on Sri Lankan politics, the country's publishing scene, why it's uh, probably not possible for any writer to be divorced from political realities, why his next book is going to be based on the corporate world and what life after the booker has been like. Listen up. that uh, you know i started reading the book a couple of days ago and it's one of the most engaging books i have read in recent times so i Thank really enjoyed it you said a couple of times about how the people in sri lanka have a very good sense of humor and how they are joyful people and how they often uh, sort of uh, describe their pain or their trauma through their sense of humor as a writer is that what you've also attempted to do yeah so i think i mean it's a dark sense of humor um and you see it you've seen it over the last year i mean we've what a traumatic year we've had and yet um, if you look on um, social media twitter and so on the jokes just keep flowing uh, and the political cartoons and and may i guess it's a coping mechanism you know where our stereotype is that we are this smiley happy go lucky islanders but also we are capable of great brutality and great cruelty as well so it's it's almost like two sides of this coin um, that either we laugh at each other or we are hurting each other so i think in recent times that's our way of processing trauma because even though a lot of i guess um, horrible things have happened over the last year over the last decade over the last few decades sri lanka's uh, it's a cheerful place like it's not a grim place and it's even if you look at our cricket you know i mean i know the indians and pakistanis get quite i mean we're as passionate but when the team is losing uh, you know you, you're not going to get us throwing rocks at the players we'll the band will be playing we'll be dancing and and so on so i don't know what it is but i think it's a good quality and it's something to be fostered because humor is also i mean it's a coping mechanism but also i think it's a very effective weapon because um, we you know uh, we feared we feared our leaders 10 years ago we we were so afraid that you know and with good reason you spoke out at various times in our history you speak out and you could land in quite serious trouble or or you know lose your life and it just seemed like humor is a way to kind of mock your leaders and it it takes the power away and that's what was proven in the aragale it was like the the way they were kind of laughing and mocking their leaders it kind of takes the power away from them so i think it's it's a it's a good thing so you grew up uh, in sri lanka in colombo during the civil war and then you were outside you were in many countries and then you you've come back uh, how 
has Sri Lanka changed for you in your perception, the Sri Lanka of your childhood versus the Sri Lanka that you came back to? How has it changed? Well, I went and came back a few times. You know, I left in 1990, uh, finished school and university, came back in the late 90s and I worked there. Um, I went back, so I go away for periods of, like short periods. So I went to England, uh, worked there for like five years, came back. Um, so it's hard to, and then I lived in Singapore and then came back. I suppose if you compare the 80s to now, and people ask me that, you know, because we're going through more turmoil, but I don't think it's a comparison at all. 89 was a particularly brutal, terrible time. Um, 2022 was uncertain and a bit scary, but nowhere near that kind of brutality that we had, and I hope we'd never ever see the 80s again. Um, how Sri Lanka has changed, I think, I mean, if you look at Colombo, I don't think Colombo was a very interesting city when I was growing up, but now it's, I, I encourage, like, usually if a friend comes over, I say, skip Colombo, go to, go to Gaul or Yala or something, but now I say, yeah, spend a couple of days in Colombo because it's actually quite an interesting and beautiful city and, uh, you know, much like Calicut, it's, uh, so, I know, how has it changed? I, I'm wondering if it's changed enough. I'm wondering if it's changed enough because even though we don't have a war, and I think the major change is when I was growing up, checkpoints. It was a city full of checkpoints and um, now it's, it's much more open and so on. But it just seems that there's always an underlying tension and, and turmoil and, and stuff. So I wish that would change. I wish we would have a peaceful country and a prosperous country that was moving forward. But uh, also, I think the thing that doesn't change is we seem to say, have the same bunch of politicians uh, every election cycle. I, I'd like to see some new ideas emerging. Right. Let's see. Right. Uh, you've written about uh, Sri Lanka while in the country as well. And you've also spoken about, say, writing about a country, writing about certain situations in the country while out, outside of the country. Like, mm. uh, thinking about it, reflecting on it while you are someplace else. Uh, from a writing standpoint, what exactly is the difference there? Well, it's straight, like I, and I'm going to that period now where you want to, when I'm away, I want to come back. And when I'm there after a few years, I kind of think, okay, maybe I should go and stay somewhere else. And I've tried to write about other places. I tried to write about Singapore and when I lived in London, I guess I was quite young in New Zealand. But I felt I never had permission to, to write about those countries and also... It seemed like, I mean, especially London, if you write a detective story in London, I mean, that's been done for hundreds of years, What? how can you be original? But Sri Lanka, it just seems there's abundance of stories and absurdities and, uh, you know, very few of us writing. So I suppose that's what helps me, makes me come back and write about this. Uh, but sometimes the distance helps, like when I'm thinking of ideas, so now I'm here. Looks like I'll be traveling for the next 12 months. It's exhausting. and But, you know, I'm sitting in hotel rooms, putting down ideas. But the actual writing, I have to be on the ground. It's, it's a strange thing. I think you need to be kind of smelling the air and talking to people. Because I find the stuff that I write when I'm outside feels a bit false or, or I don't know, just doesn't feel convincing. But when I'm back home, the dialogue and all flows much uh, smoother. So, so, I don't know, I think... I think I'll be. I'll keep doing that. I think I'll keep going outside, then missing the country and coming back. But um, yeah, it's a strange kind of relationship that I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm coming back to the book. There are a couple of uh, points.
across the book or a couple of lines that for some reason stayed with me. Like for example, the line when you say his voice evaporated like good intentions do. What does that mean? So it occurred to me just studying Sri Lankan history that um, most of the violent causes, uh, violent you know, groups and all that, it all started with a worthy cause. It, um, you know, the Tamil people were were persecuted and made to feel like second-class citizens with the single only act of 58 and, and so therefore, you know, for the Tamils to speak up for their rights saying that they are, you know, as, and, and this is a big debated subject, but you know, Tamil people have been in Sri Lanka since, uh, you know, throughout our history. And, you know, it was a cause that I suppose, uh, you know, I, I thought was fair enough and I was sympathetic to, but of course what happened to it was it became, firstly it became violent, uh, then it became fascistic. Uh, it became, so the Tamil Tigers ended up killing more, killing Tamil moderates, Tamil civilians and so on. But it began from, a, that doesn't mean the cause of well, that Tamils have a right to be in Sri Lanka and are part of it. I think that cause was worthy and, and same with the JVP and all that. This was working class kids or university graduates who couldn't find jobs and, um, and who were, you, know, you live in a communist state so I don't need to preach to you, but the, again it started with the word that let's um, make the society a bit more equi equitable and, and so on. So again starts with a, a worthy cause but then it becomes and you know the left movement was quite strong in Sri Lanka in the 60s and the 70s. It's all but died now because of you know the youth in the 70s and the 80s turned to violence and uh, kind of killed the whole credibility of the left. But again, you think it started off with a with a decent cause. And I mean, if I may talk about, and I'm nervous about talking about, say, Mahinda Rajapaksa. He was a human rights activist in the 80s. In the 80s, he used to, um, and this is all documented. It's in the book. So again, I just wonder. It just seems like. Everything starts with good intentions and a worthy cause. Not everything, but most things, and then somehow it gets perverted and becomes the thing that it fears the most. So that's sort of what I was alluding to in that, that good intentions evaporate and sort of get replaced by other things. And same with politics. Like, peop like there are a lot of people that I think would make great politicians. Not myself, I, I think I'll make a terrible one, but I think there are people, but all of them say, you can't get to, you know, you might come into it with the intention of helping the country and so on, but uh, in order to get to that top level, you're going to have to make deals and make kind of alliances with unsavory character, and you've got to fund your campaign, so there, and, and therefore, to become a successful politician, you end up compromising the ideals that you started with. That seems to be the contradiction of the, and not just in Sri Lanka, I mean, America, the whole lobbyists and so on, so... That's something that's always intrigued me, that uh, good intentions don't always remain that way. Right. You know, this this uh, took me to that uh, the cheat sheets that you have in the book where you, uh, where you sort of try and explain the different stakeholders in this. And connected to that, even in the session now, you mentioned again that, you know, you're not a political writer, you would rather describe yourself as a genre writer. Mm. But, you know, sometimes I feel that probably the only way to make sense of the world is to make everything up. So in that, in that way, can anyone be removed from politics in life, you know, and then as a writer, is that even possible? I hope so. I really hope so because I think, 
it's a bit strange to me because I mean my first book was about cricket and even though it had a bit of politics in it and but my brief to myself with the first book was can I write a book about Sri Lanka in the 90s that didn't mention the war mm. and you know the seminal event of the 90s was winning the World Cup in 1996 and what a moment it was no one expected it and it, it proved to us that even though we are war-torn, war-ravaged, uh, underachieving nation, we can unify and get behind a cause and be world-class. And, and I wanted to write about that. And um, yeah, I, I mean, that was 10 years ago. And um, yeah, I never got asked about politics then. Everyone's talking about cricket and the craft of writing and uh, genre fiction, which is what I'm really interested in. I suppose with this, and again, I, I thought it was a ghost story. I, I fan of horror movies and ghost stories, I want to write my version of a ghost story, but using Sri Lanka as a canvas. But I guess, I mean, there is a lot of politics in it. Um, though I, I'm not sure there's, you know, I, I don't really take, I hope I don't really take sides, it just seems. And in that cheat sheet, it just says, don't look for the good guys, because there ain't none. They're, yeah. they're all as bad as each other, and I don't, I, and I think that's the position that the book takes. Right. And it's, which means that it's more of a murder mystery. I mean, it's been criticized that, you know, I paint everyone with the same brush, but I think that's intentional. I'm not interested in debating who was, whether the LTT were worse than the government, whether the JVP were worse than the IPKF. That's, I mean, for political theorists. I was just murder mystery and I had these elements to it. So I certainly hope that you can write that, you know, politics is all around us and it depresses me when I open the newspaper and it's just all about politicians and pictures of their... And, you know, there's a lot more interesting... I don't find them that interesting, to be honest. I, uh, you know, I'm more interested in drunks and uh, photographers and, you know, just normal people. So, yeah, I'd like to think that. And hopefully my next book, I'm going to steer very clear away from politics so I can go back to being a genre writer. Right. Yeah. What's, what's your next job right now? Well, it's bad luck to talk about uh, books that haven't been written. That's the first rule. Um, you, you talk about books too much that you haven't written, you're never going to write it. I mean, I'll say it's... Um, I'm looking at the corporate world. Um, I worked in advertising and I've worked with different clients and I just think the corporate world has a lot of comic elements to it and a lot of absurdity to it and a lot of kind of... Yeah, anyway, I've said too much already. So I think I'll... <laughs> I'll, there'll be no cricket, there'll be no ghosts, there'll be no dead bodies. But uh, yeah, let's see, let's see. I've only just started it, so. You were talking about how, uh, you know, when you are imagining something that no one has seen, like the afterlife, for example, it's very easy to say whatever you want to say. But when you uh, say certain specific things that I found really, you know, funny and also really interesting in the book, like when um, Mali is there in the afterlife and then when he's, say, you have to get an ear, ear test done, like an ear checkup and then go to uh, floor 42 and get that stamp and, you know, things like that. So, how do you, what were you thinking at that time, you know, how, how did these specific details, like how did they strike you at that time? very slowly I mean that's the thing about a book like a reader reads it in one uh, you know one month or whatever in and but to write it I remember constructing the afterlife took me a long long time at least a couple of years to figure out what the rules were the ear check I was just intrigued by I mean I'm always intrigued by rebirth and you know it's part of Buddhist and Hindu tradition and I've often wondered about the logic of how 
how karma, if, if, if karma is true. Because, you know, uh, you see in the world, you see good people, terrible things happening to good people, you see terrible people uh, you know, triumphing, and you think, well, where is this karma? And uh, does it, so the idea, does it happen? Is there someone keeping a ledger and uh, yeah. and all that? So these these ideas have intrigued me, but also the ears. Like um, everyone's ears are slightly different. If you look and right. you can't see your own ears, and so but I I, I I just I know where it comes from. But I it just intrigued me that everyone has slightly different ears, and maybe if you are and so I was looking at rebirth. The idea that your ears have the key to all your past lives, it was, I mean they don't come, like these are ideas that come very slowly but I was trying to deconstruct, um, yeah, so what are the rules of the afterlife, because the thing is this, if you're creating a fantasy world, you still need to have consistent rules for it. Mm. It really irritates me when I'm reading fantasy when suddenly, ah, suddenly he can become invisible yeah. or he can breathe fire. I'm like, why didn't you tell us that before and it just seemed... If it feels like the writer is just making it up, then you're like, okay, you're just wasting my time. The best uh, fantasy or sort of sci-fi is where they set the rules and they're consistent to it. So then when, and so I was very keen on making sure that my afterlife had had a very consistent basis of rules, and it wasn't always the case. Like it took a lot of rewriting, and so these ideas of the wind and um, yeah, you have seven moons and the year checks and all that. It it took a long time. The world building takes a long time, um, and yeah, a good couple of years. But but then when you finally get it and you put and when and also helped with the editor like years, huh? a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, easily, easily a couple of years. Like you know, you're writing chapters, and then I, I had a whole list of ghost rules. I mean, I should go through my notes. Were I showed it to Han Muhammad Hani, a yeah. friend and a mentor and idol of mine. I. I sent him like my manuscript and I said, here are the rules and he goes, man, you've written a PhD about your own book because I had, I had ghost rules, I had lists of ghosts, I had, uh, I tend to, yeah, overdo that and when I'm writing, my wall is plastered with all these random notes, but I think that, that helps. Uh, yeah. yeah. When you have overload of so much of information, you're sort of swimming in so many details, uh, is there a lot of pressure to give that perfect opening line for the book that would sort of set the tone like like you say answers you wake up with the answer to the question that everyone asks the answer is yes and the answer is just like here but worse and you're referring to the afterlife what is the kind of pressure is there a pressure in writing that perfect opening line that sort of sucks the reader into the world further so i find now when i i, I mean i don't just i mean i've written two books but i also write advertising i write yeah feature articles and so on now, when I'm writing a feature article, or even yeah, when I'm writing an ad campaign, like say an article, it'll my if I have two weeks to write the article, I will take twelve days to write the first sentence, and um, maybe it's a procrastination thing. I will, and I'll try. It'll take me twelve days, and then it might take me four hours to write the next uh, five hundred thousand words. But that opening line is, I find it very. If I don't get it, and sometimes you can't wait for it. Sometimes you just you know, go and then you come up with, but I, I find if I get the opening line right, the rest flows. Not the case with books though, because books are like, uh, you don't even write the first chapter sometimes. You're, sometimes you start with the middle chapter and, and all that. So I think with both books, I, I mean, opening lines are important. I, I heard that John Irving, he writes world, yeah, 
what was the world according to Gap and Cider House Rules, that he writes the last line first. He writes the last line and then he leads up to the last line, which I can guess works well in a short story, but in a novel and apparently according to legend, he really changes the, the last line that he started like three years later when he's finished the book, the last line remains intact. That's not the case with me. Like uh, I've rewritten the first chapter of all my books more times than anything else. Um, so I don't think I started with that. I, I can't even remember. You have to go through my notes. Um, but yeah, you do rewrite. Um, the beginning is very important. So you have to have all the elements there, and you have to hook the reader. So yeah. I ended up writing that yeah too many times. So yeah, who knows where it comes from? How has winning the Booker changed things for you as a writer, and perhaps? for the country, say, the publishing scene in the country, the other writers in Sri Lanka? Well, it's early days now and I haven't had time to write since then. That's So that's the big change. Um, usually I'm at home uh, writing five or six days a week. Now I'm not at home. I'm outside traveling, talking to people, getting interviewed, um, being yeah, checking my email. That's the, or answering my email. That's what I'm doing. So I think that's the the price of this success, uh, you know, I'm not complaining, but it's a bit weird. Um, so I don't know how it's changed me. I mean, it remains to be seen now. When I start, I started writing the third novel, um, you know, I'm about 20, 30 pages in, long way to go. It'll be interesting once I, I've got to kind of, because to write anything, you've got to silence all the voices. So hopefully when the circus dies down, I can go back to my room and start it. So I don't know the answer is, I think you know, there's always pressure when you're writing, even if you're, uh, whether you're a Booker Prize winner or you know, starting out, there's always pressure, right? Uh, so let's see, let's see. So it's hard to answer that one, but I think with the publishing industry, my hope is that um, Sri Lankan writers will be given more of a fair, like at least um, foreign publishers may think, um, because Sri Lanka's full of stories and we've got some terrific writers there. So hopefully that uh, publishers will take more of interest in, in Sri Lanka and look at Sri Lankan stories. Uh, let's see, but I guess it's, what, three months since the book, so let's see what the, ask me in 12 months. But, but that's my hope that, yeah, more Sri Lankan writers get published internationally. And my hope is, yeah, that I'm able to write and uh, the next book is better than this one. Yeah, right. that's... Yeah. You've said that you don't get enough, uh, you've, not, you've not been writing enough, but how do you get time to read? What have you been reading? Lately. So I've been reading, I mean I read about five or six books at the same time. Uh, I know quite a few writers do that. I, it's, you know, I'll read something that uh, I enjoy, something that, I, that, you know, a classic that I'm, you know, sh I should read and some non-fiction and so on. What have I packed this time? I'm reading Elizabeth Gilbert's um, sequel to Eat, Pray, Love called Committed. Um, I'm not sure why, it was just, uh, I think also, I've been reading a lot of politics and violence. I want like something, a different subject. Uh, I just finished reading Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates. Terrific novel. I think um, I'm interested in the corporate world and advertising and all that, so maybe that reflects that. Um, I'm also reading George Saunders, an idol of mine, who wrote Lincoln in the Bardo, which was another talking ghost book that won the Booker. I'm reading some of his essays. Um, what else? And I'm reading Ashok Ferry, my, my friend and uh, another, um, you know, influence, I suppose. He's a, he's a Sri Lankan short story writer, writes very kind of humorous, light stuff. So I'm reading his book. 
unmarriageable man. But uh, yeah, I'm reading for fun now because um, I think, yeah, I'm traveling this circus and uh, yeah, so I think you got to read for, ple for pleasure. That's what I'm trying to teach my kids as, yeah. you know, they don't have to read Dickens and Jane Austen, just read Wimpy Kid or whatever you enjoy yeah. and then, you know, you can find your place, yeah. Great, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us. Very welcome, thank you. So that was Shehan Karunatilaka on From the Bookshelves of Forbes India. Thank you for listening in. We'd love to have your feedback. So let us know what you think. This is Divya Shekhar. See you next time.